Good morning. Good morning. Welcome on this fine Lord's Day. There are no uh, pressing announcements other than your pastor and family will be on vacation this week, so if you don't hear from me, it's okay. Pardon? Yeah, there's no Wednesday study, no Thursday study. Um, I guess that's it. But there is Thanksgiving. We have called worship. God has called us, and indeed the entire world, and we are privileged to respond to that call to honor Him. Lord, I have loved the habitation of Thy house, and the place wherein Thy honor dwelleth. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 119M, 119M.
us pray. So God above, we indeed hate every path that is wrong. Help us, Lord, to see those paths so that we may avoid them and continue following the path of righteousness by the power of your Spirit above. We ask these things, Lord, especially this morning as we come before your presence, God, so that we could honor you all the more. We pray all these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have responsive reading, Psalm 22, which is inside the bulletin. Psalm 22, at least part of it. I do not. There we go. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying... But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And so the psalmist in this part of the psalm obviously is crying out to God. And in that language, we hear the language of Christ crying out to his Lord and Savior. As Christ represents us, he is... Uh, the perfect one. So when he cried out, it had nothing to do with his own sins, but uh, the sins he bore upon him are sins and the consequences therein as only our Savior can. And yet, uh, even as, of course, it points ultimately to Christ who fulfilled it in great measure and fullness, uh, it's still the language we can use because it's a human prayer and Christ was also human. And he cried out to his God, that is our God and our Father as well. And we too can cry out in the language here, always trusting that God will hear us through Christ Jesus, for he is the one who prays uh, perpetually for us and intercedes for us with perfect prayers. Let us pray. As we are gathered this morning, God above, thankful, Lord, for your spirit within us, for your special providence towards us, and for the 
multitude of goodness bestowed upon us. As Americans, as Christians in America, Lord, for our communities, for the various and sundry things that you've given us, God, through your providence, for the food and for the shelter, for the clothing, God, above. These many things that we have and we are blessed with, Lord, and although we have many things we are concerned about, God, we know these things are blessing nevertheless. Continue blessings upon us, Lord. We're also thankful for the blessing, God, of protection, for the law of self-defense. Thankful, God, that we have such in our communities, in our state, and in our nation, God above, and also the freedom to worship, the freedom to preach, and to evangelize God, and these things have not been shut down, although we uh, know that it seems a rising tide of uh, people and those in influence wish to shut down all those avenues, God. We ask God for continued goodness towards us and through our state, Lord, and through especially your providence through the state, God, and that we would maintain these righteous laws, we maintain these freedoms, uh, God above, and that just laws we perpetuated and supported and upheld, Lord God, uh, for you have, again, in your special providence, given us many of such good laws in this nation. And we pray, God, uh, for the state of our nation, for the state of our state, for the state of our local communities, Lord, that they would maintain and desire such righteous laws and not think so narrow-mindedly towards them, God, because they also protect them. And we pray, God, especially in this regard, for your church, that such thoughts would be used for the protection of your church, the protection of the members of your church uh, throughout this nation, God. We pray, Lord, for repentance of our leaders, repentance of all levels of government, uh, that they would flee the wickedness and evil machinations that they have, God, and cry to Jesus Christ. Give them access to faithful ministers and churches, Lord, through the Bible, sermon somewhere, God, somehow, we pray, and that the churches will stand firm and preach and teach the whole counsel of God, including the law of God, as we will hear this morning, so that wickedness would be restrained in our nation. We pray, God, for our sins, for we know the law is also applied to Christians, Lord. We are not free from the law in so far as it is there to guide us unto the life of holiness and to remind us and convict us of sins, God. But we certainly have these things and we struggle with them, perhaps sins of ignorance, ignorance of your law, ignorance of how it applies to our particular case, perhaps, God. Excuses that we make, Lord, uh, feeble and yet real in our minds, God, uh, to bypass some of your law, Lord, for our own pet sins. Whatever our violations of your holy Commandments are, God. Help us to acknowledge them and repent of them, Lord, and continue repenting and fighting against them all the life long. This is the call of sanctification, Lord. This is the call of a holy life, God above. As Christ perfectly obeyed the law and thus upheld your holiness, your righteousness, your uprightness before the world, so we are too called to follow in his footsteps, not to justify ourselves, Lord, not even to sanctify ourselves in the sense of not needing you, uh, or in the sense of uh, what we do is pivotal for our salvation, but rather, God, as the outworking and flowing of your Spirit within us that gave us a new heart and guides and directs us uh, through your providence. Help us, Lord, therein, and our call of sanctification uh, to learn and grow in the understanding of who Christ is, who you are, our Father above, for who the Holy Spirit is, who uh, drives us to pray. Uh, for the gospel, Lord, and the good news of Jesus Christ that is good news every morning for us, 
Lord, for us and our sanctification. And we need such wonderful news of the gospel for it reminds us, God, that you do cover our sins. As our Father, Lord, you forgive us. You do not cast us out of your home, out of your heavenly kingdom, but rather, Lord, cover our sins through the intercession of Christ Jesus and continue, Lord, to work in us by the power of your Spirit that we may be made and renewed in the image of Christ Jesus. We pray, God, for continued growth and desire in that regards and that we would use the means, causes, occasions, and provocations thereunto to further our sanctification, uh, to eschew the wicked and the evilness and lawlessness around us, God, and to embrace the holy law of Jesus Christ, and that our sanctification is not divorced from the law, but rather it needs the law to define what holiness is. We also pray and ask God uh, for this week of Thanksgiving, for safety of our travels uh, to and about as we go to our families, Lord, and celebrate the goodness that you gave the founding of this nation, Lord, where the Puritans needed help and they got help from the Indians. Uh, and, of course, all that's involved in that history that we went over in Sunday school class, God, and the wonderful things that you've given us, our inheritance, God, that we would treasure it, Lord, not as though it's the Word of God, but rather it is the precious jewels that you've given us uh, through history, Lord, of your grace upon our peoples and upon uh, us and our forefathers down to this present day, God, that we would maintain and hold on to this inheritance and give it to our children and our children's children and maintain what we can in this nation, Lord. Uh, continued freedom to preach, to teach, to instruct, and to influence for the betterment of our, our neighbors, Lord, always with the eye on, upon the law of God and, above all, upon the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel. We pray, God, that you continue to be with us this week and that we would take one day at a time and be strengthened by your grace. We pray these things in your name alone. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed three in one, for the many glorious goodness and blessings towards us, God, and that we can take some of that blessing and goodness and give it back to the work of the church of God, that earthly expression of the kingdom of God, most visible to the world. We ask, Lord, to be used mightily and wisely. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us sing hymn 567 while we are standing. 567. Wait, what? 
Oh, I'm sorry. Psalm 1-8. I see him. Yeah, the organization's... Uh, got confused by my notes. 1-8. sheet. For easy access for a number of uh, elements, some of the elements are not uh, there or a different translation, as I mentioned before. Ten Commandments, let us say them together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let us pray. With these wonderful words of God of life and of holiness, may we be encouraged to continue on in what many of us have been taught uh, all our life, or most of our Christian life, God, that the law of God is given to us as Christians as well, not as a covenant of works, rather, God, under the context of the covenant of grace, because because we are saved, therefore we wish to obey and not the other way around. And in particular, God, the law, your law, restrains and rebukes and regulates us, help us learn to God, as your people, to continue to accept that and to grow thereby. In your name alone we pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say we live in a lawless age. We also, I think, can say we live in a legalistic age. How can that be, you may ask? Often that it's the case because the law, as in this case, for example, of abortion, is used, made up out of thin air, hence legalistic. It's a law. In fact, they're claiming it's a right. In fact, they want women, girls, young ladies, who haven't even thought about it, to have that right so much that they they were allowed to do it and get influenced and groomed to that end without parental consent. That's what they mean. That's legalism. To defend lawless acts of murder is what they're doing. And unfortunately, this can happen in the church as well. On the other hand, the law is ignored and greatly even in the case of abortion, because it hampers the acts of wicked 
men. They, ignoring God's law written on their hearts, and make up a new law, the law of abortion. That's what I'm talking about as an example. Unfortunately, this also happens in the church. In fact, given the numbers on Christians who are okay living with one another, it's a new study that came out yet again showing it grew amongst those polled. And you may say, but pastor, those aren't real Christians. All polls can ever do, I looked into this, is ask. They take their self-reporting. They do that for race. They do that for all kinds of things. Uh, because many of these things, unless you get into their life, you're really not going to know. But they're consistent. It shows consistency and effects. We see uh, at least some kind of um, overlapping, perhaps causal effect, a lot of those studies over the years. And it's growing in the church. We witnessed it here. We disciplined a family for playing around that way. And they got upset and left, unfortunately. It is a problem, brothers and sisters. As much as there is some form of legalism, the Accent in America and in the churches, as it were, is more on the lawlessness, on antinomianism or against God's law, nomos. It's a pressing matter in the church. But what is the law? And what does it mean to Christians? In the earlier sermon, we heard that the law commands as well as condemns. I already had a sermon on the law. Those are the two main points. It commands and it condemns. Now we're going to look at the law in a slightly different perspective because it's multifaceted. And we're going to see these three points of the law of God and how it applies to humans and Christians in particular. In this sermon, as I said, we will understand the depth of it. The law is not only for condemning, but for Christians as well. And it directs us into a holy life that glorifies God. That's what I wish to emphasize. Not that the law is here to justify us, to bring us a right standing before God's law court. That is only Jesus Christ and Him alone. And even in the context of sanctification, it is not us and our bare naked soul, as it were, and our will just working harder now that we are born again, and that somehow means something like Pelagius, that we're back to Adam. No, we have a Spirit of God dwelling in us, and so that we are directed towards holiness, and holiness is defined by God's law. We do not obey the law to be saved. We are saved, therefore we wish to obey the law. That's all the difference in the world. And I will end our series on the basics of the faith when I return on the good news of the gospel. So, we have law and gospel is how I'm ending the series, in other words. And these two great truths of Christianity, the need is here again to emphasize upon the law as well as the gospel. But what is the moral law? Question 93 of the larger catechism. What is the moral law? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to man. Kind, not just Christians. There's this weird uh, movement within reform circles, which is kinds of kind of talks like, "Hey, the law of God is not really for unbelievers. It's kind of a Christian thing." Directing and binding everyone, everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity. Isn't that great? Nice alliteration there in the catechism. And obedience thereunto, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, not just outwardly, it's inwardly, it's not just your thoughts, it's also your actions, soul and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness, which he oweth to God and man. Because the law, as you know, is divided into two great tables, the first and second table. The first table is towards God, the second table is towards our fellow men, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Three 
points about the law. The law is here to restrain our temptation, to rebuke our transgression, and to regulate our transactions, our moral transactions, what we do in life. It is a restraint upon our temptation. We see that in uh, Psalm 19, 7, 11, 1 Timothy 1, 9. I read part of it here. You can see a number of the functions of the law of God here in Psalm 19. Uh, the great psalm that starts out with the handiwork of God is seen in creation. And then, of course, the handiwork of God is also seen in his moral law, the second half of the Psalm 19. It is perfect. It converts the soul. It brings about change, uh, a la conviction in particular. And, of course, it directs us towards the right. It commands us unto holiness and the like. And it even brings uh, fear upon them. Uh, we read here, that who can understand his errors, cleanse me from my secret faults, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Why? Because of the law. Because I love the law. I have the law. And he's saying by implication, the law is here to protect me and restrain me. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord with respect to what? That's kind of vague. Well, it's not vague because he's just talking about law, law, law there in the verses and the verses after. It's all about the moral law of God. The fear of God with respect to his moral law in particular is what he's highlighting. In 1 Timothy 1.9, we read a greater detail of this idea of this uh, one function of the law. We have these three, restraint, rebuke, and regulate. Re- restraint, 1 Timothy 1.9, to restraint upon sinners knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. We... Explain this part of the law's function often in reform circles as a restraint upon the wicked so that we have an orderly society. It's a restraint upon the wicked to maintain an orderly society. The law of God, as expressed in particular their hearts and then Hopefully, and as it has been the case more or less in many civilizations in the written code, you still had codes against murder, you still have codes against adultery, even if they played around with, you know, the rich and the poor who got away with what. It's still there because it was written on their hearts. It held them back. It held back much wickedness, even in Rome. People are afraid. They don't want to be punished. That's part of the function of the law. Externally, of course, and internally upon their conscience, they feel guilty. People don't like to feel guilty. I don't blame them. And so one way to avoid the feeling of guilt is to obey the law, at least outwardly. The unbeliever is restrained from murder, from chaos. Kind of hard and sounds hollow when I say that after what happened last year in America. But if you think about it, it could have been worse. But it's not just for unbelievers. Christians sin as well, last I checked. It's written on their hearts, as I already mentioned before, and is there uh, to restrain us, particularly the civil magistrate, Romans 13, 1, for example. He is there to punish the wicked. 
How can he do that unless God had given him his law? And how does he give him his law? Through Moses? Well, if he has the word of God, he has Moses. But if he doesn't, what does he have? He has it written on his heart. The king, the magistrate does. It holds back the floodgates of evil. And as I pointed out, the external obedience, of course, is better than no obedience. But there'll be hypocrites. You know, I wish they would repent, but I'd rather have that than what I had last summer all over the nation instead. Law is there, external law in particular, that is the law manifested in legal code. For example, the Code of Hammurabi. You've probably heard of him, Hammurabi, in school at one time. A great big law code. Has a lot of overlap with Old Testament law. Did you know that? Kind of interesting. Because they too have the law of God written on their hearts. And they too can write it down and say, this is better than nothing, than chaos, than moral chaos. Roman law in particular was used to protect Paul and the church and Acts. Good. It restrained evil upon the church in that case. <laughs> upon Paul. Good. I want that. But they're hypocrites. I don't care if they're hypocrites. It's between them and God. I'm not here to fix all that. I'm here to preserve what God has given us, which is the church and my family. And give me good laws to restrain the external wickedness of men. Restraints are good. Restraints upon external actions are good. This is part of the function of the law of God, to restrain us, to restrain us from temptation to sin. Where the law of God exists, that is written down in code to some extent, and certainly social pressure as well, because you can't put everything that's forbidden in God's law into moral law often that is legal law, it suppresses sin. That's a good thing. We want that. Otherwise, men will just run around and we have moral chaos. The law restrains sin, especially in society, but certainly upon Christians. Second point, the law is a rebuke upon our transgressions. Remember when you sinned or you caught your child in sin, or you're going to have a child soon and you're going to catch them in sin, that one time when you or the child said, who me? Denied it anything wrong? Fudged a little. I didn't quite hear you. It wasn't, it wasn't clear to me. I was distracted. And what do you say? Often you heard your parents tell you, and you're going to tell your, parents, your kids the same thing. I told you not to do that. Clean the wax out of your ear, maybe. That is the rebuke of the law. I told you not to do that. And then you proceed to tell them specifically what you told them the day before, or the hour before, or whatever the case was. Clean your room. Don't touch that. That's the rebuke of the law. All mankind feels this rebuke in the form of guilt. They know the law. It's in their hearts. It's there to stop them from wicked things, and they ignore it, and they feel guilt. Romans one twenty one. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It brings about further decay, moral decay. They start suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and it comes to a point where their conscience is eventually seared as with a hot iron, Paul says elsewhere in the epistles. They feel nothing. No more guilt or remorse. And unfortunately, we're seeing more of that in our nation. (laughs) Partly because the moral law is being eaten away in the form of the legal code in America and ignored. They call uh, 
anarchy tyranny in America. And unfortunately, it's bleeding into the churches. Because often we have, in my experience, unfortunately, sometimes to some extent, Reformed churches as well, although we have a robust history of understanding the law of God and, and trying to apply, it, it's bleeding into the Reformed churches, unfortunately. And so the rebuke is there. Without the rebuke, uh, their hearts will become further hardened and futile, and even eventually their consciences will no longer feel guilt. Specific function of the law, Romans 3.19, we read, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So here in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's unpacking the function of the law to rebuke, not restrain, to hold back because of fear, but to rebuke and say, that is wrong. Now, rebuke may bring about fear, but it doesn't have to. It may bring about restraint, but it doesn't have to. It's a rebuke. Stop it. That under the law, every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. And the rebuke in that particular case is, you are wrong. You are on your way to hell. You're a rebel. You are condemned because you've broken the law of God. That kind of rebuke. And you keep breaking the law of God and you don't care. It exposes their thoughts, it exposes their actions, and they know it. As we read in Romans 1.18 and Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him. They have the knowledge, the moral knowledge of who God is and therefore his law, because the law is written on their hearts. Although effaced by sin, it's enough there to be enough guilt. And it rebukes them every day, like a drumbeat, a heartbeat, every breath they take. The law of God condemns them. It rebukes them. That's a very strong and powerful tool, function of the law of God. And the church ought to use that function as Paul did. And I remind you, brothers and sisters, who did Paul write the book of Romans to? Ah, Christians. Christians in Rome. We too need to hear this. And so it's not just the world needs the rebuke. The wicked anarchists need the rebuke, but Christians need rebuke as well, brothers and sisters. We need the rebuke as well. The law is here to rebuke us, to remind us of our sins, that we may repent of our sins. It does that through illuminating sin itself, and thus brings conviction upon us. We read that in Romans 7.12, where Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. It's there to illuminate not just the world, but ourselves. Because there's confusion, as we're finding out, unfortunately, in the churches about what specifically is sin. Is that really a sin, to have that kind of an inclination in life? Uh, yeah, yes it is. The law is very clear. And thus, that brings a rebuke by just illuminating us. We read it and go, well, that's wrong. I don't like that. I didn't realize that. That's why there are sins of ignorance. You're still uh, morally wrong. You're still objectively wrong. Even if you've been confused and grew up with the wrong idea of God's law, that doesn't matter. The cop doesn't care if you didn't see the speed limit sign. Before the law of God, you're guilty. Before the law of the state, you're guilty for speeding. You recall in the Old Testament, you have sacrifices for sins of ignorance. And the law is also there to remove that ignorance so that we can see the truth and no longer use fig leaves to hide our sin even for 
Christians. And it does this also, the rebuke and the, through illumination, and the rebuke also has another function, not just to illuminate us, but to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, we read, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law in the Old Testament as the uh, ceremonial law, of course, which was all the outward manifestations, the symbolism that pointed to the work and person of Jesus Christ, but also the moral law insofar as it says, you need someone perfect. You're not perfect. Christ is our perfection. He obeyed the law for us perfectly. And so we need to preach the law to rebuke, to break up the soil for the seed of the gospel. That's its function in the preaching of the church. And of course, for ourselves, that we may repent of our sins and flee from them and not be ensnared in the ignorance of the age towards God's law. Not that you get rebuked from the law and you say, I got caught, I feel miserable, I don't like the feeling. That's true. Not that I don't want the punishment of the law. That's a motivation, although a lesser motivation. I'm not going to tell a Christian that's a, that means you're not a believer. Christians have that motivation. That's fine. Use it to grow. But the highest motivation is I love God and I hate sin. The law is there to help you further that way. And we cry out to the Lord, have pity on me, a sinner. As John the baptizer prepared the way of Christ by calling them to what? Repentance. And so, too, the church today is called to call the world towards repentance, to have churches only preach the good news and never the law of God, in particular the law of God as that which rebukes and brings condemnation, is a weak and anemic church. It's not following the pattern of the Bible, the pattern of Christ's ministry, nor Paul's explicit words and usage of the law of God. We need it. The world needs it, and we need it as well, brothers and sisters. In particular, we need it because it brings us to the third function of the law, not only uh, to rebuke us, but to regulate our lives, not only to restrain us and to hold us back because of fear, but also to guide and direct us in our moral transactions of the world. In Psalm 19, uh, 11, we read, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward, Warned for what? Warned to do the right thing and warned to flee from the bad thing. (laughs) They are there for us to grow as Christians, to understand our errors, verse 12, to keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, verse 13. That would be implying, of course, the rebuking function of the law. Unless they have dominion over me, that I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. And how can you be blameless and innocent unless you know the law of God and you follow in its footsteps? Because the law of God defines blamelessness and innocence. Our transactions with one another and with God, it regulates. It warns us from the danger of sin. It directs us unto righteousness and holiness and innocence. The gospel does not annul the law of God. Romans 3.31, Paul himself says, Do we then make void the law through faith? As being justified by faith alone and not by works. Being saved and brought before the bar of God's holy law. His holy law court. Where he hammers down the gavel and says, You are perfect in Christ Jesus. Does that annul the law of God? Make it Null and void. If I can't use the law, I guess the Jews were thinking, to save myself, what's the point of it? If I can't use it to justify myself, to say, God, look how perfect I am, bring me to heaven, to make it my warrant for eternal life, then what's the point? And he says, certainly not, or God forbid, 
It's emphatic. On the contrary, we establish the law. The gospel establishes how in the world preaching justification through faith alone and Christ alone establishes the law? How can that be? Because the law was so holy. Christ upheld it and suffered for it when we should have suffered instead. God didn't say, ah, whatever, the law, forget it. I'll just give you a pass on it. He did not give a pass. In fact, Christ suffered everything we're supposed to suffer for it. He upheld the law, and Christ obeyed it perfectly. That's how it's established. And if that's the case, if God upheld it, if the Son upheld it and the Holy Spirit upholds it, who are we to ignore God's law and make excuses for it as churches? Rather, we should speak with the language of the Bible. On the contrary, we establish the law. Obviously not to justify ourselves. But rather, it shows us and illuminates us the path of holiness in our sanctification. John fourteen fifteen, we read, If you love me, keep my commandments, Christ said. Because that's an important thing in the Christian life. It regulates our moral life. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoice in the hearts. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It shows us what is the right path, the way to go, right? It regulates and guides. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It purges us of sin because we see the sin and hate it and repent of it. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Don't you want truth in your life? Truth, justice, in the American way we hear? When I was a kid, I think that's lost now. Nobody talks that way. Or rather, justice has been what? redefined. We have the same words, but different contents. And it caught a lot of the churches off guard, unfortunately. God defines justice. God defines holiness. And that's his law that defines it and regulates our life accordingly. Psalm 119. You should sit down and try reading Psalm 119 one time. Take a section at a time <laughs> uh, per day. It's a lot of verses. Uh, if you knew Hebrew, you, you'd see that's an acrostic. A, B, C. It's going through the Hebrew alphabet. Isn't that neat? That's a lot of verses, too. It's a lot of things on what? God's law! That's how serious in holiness that God is towards holiness and righteousness. God's law. That's our moral compass, of course, in a day and age of moral chaos, legal chaos, social chaos. Christians should stand out for their sanity by following God's law. You may not have the answer to every little conundrum that people bring up, but what about this moral situation? What happens when that happens? You're just like, well, people sin. Christians sin. We don't believe in obeying the law and our sanctification that somehow we are making ourselves perfect enough and adding to our justification adding to our warrant towards heaven, adding to the blood of Christ Jesus. We believe nothing of the kind. We obey because we we believe. We obey because we're saved. We obey because we have a new heart. We want to do the right thing. Even if you keep falling down six times, the righteous man gets up the seventh time. We are called to this life of holiness, a life of being regulated by God's Ten Commandments. A way of looking at the law of God as that which regulates 
is it's a condition in the environment of life, but not the source of life, narrowly conceived. The necessity of the law is structure and order for the moral life, as human beings and all organisms have some structure and some kind of order. Even when people talk about uh, supposed chaos theory, it's a misnomer, actually. Or quantum theory and how confusing that is. It's all still orderly. They're able to have mathematical models of these things. Because math is orderly and beautiful, as our Lord is. As the rules of the road... As the rules of the road give protection and growth to drivers and helps them mature as drivers and protects them from running off in the gutter and running into each other. But it's not the engine. The rules aren't the engine of the car, are they? The engine makes the car move, and that's being born again. That's the Spirit of God within us. So we need God's law, but we have God's Spirit and a new heart. Another way of looking at it is all of life um, is... Like musicians, where you have beautiful music, but it only works if you're following the rules of music. It's the reason why it's called a symphony and not what? A concophony, which means chaotic. It's the beautiful harmony. When is a locomotive, a train, most free? On a train track. On the rigid, that rigid legalistic, it directs you and restrains you. Oh, it's so terrible. Don't let them play games with you, brothers and sisters. You know what they're saying? They're saying, we don't want the law of God to restrain us. And instead of saying that, they're just going to say, you guys are a bunch of meanie Christians, and you're so strict, and you're so legalistic. Unfortunately, I even hear Christians make that claim. Of course, they're misusing the word. We're not adding to God's law. That's legalism. Nor do we believe we're saved by God's law. That is justified. That's legalism. So what are they talking about? It's a slur. Well, I think many of you have grown up and learned these things about God's law that is there to restrain, rebuke, and to regulate your life. And that's a good thing, praise be to his name. But you're going to run across Christians who don't, who are confused, as I was. Romans 7.12 is a very good text to use. Or 7.22 is even better text, if that's possible. 7.12 says, therefore the law is holy, and the commandments holy and just and good. Oh, okay, well that's it. Paul said that, oh. You see, there are Christians who still believe the law is somehow bad, and you're not under the law. They have this technical usage of the word under, where Paul just means you're not under it as that which justifies you, or covenant of works. 7.22 is even greater. For I... Who's I? Who's writing Romans? Paul. For I delight in the law of God. Can your fellow Christians ask him, do you delight in the law of God? If you have this debate with them, they're like, I'm not on the law, I'm under, uh, but I'm under grace. Okay, that's true with respect to justification, with respect to your warrant to heaven, that you can't say, look how good I am, bring me to heaven, please. But how do you grow as a Christian? How do you follow God's will? Well, I believe in following God's will. That's called the law of God. Oh, no, I'm not under the law of God. See how confused they are, the way they talk? These are things that help break my mind of that way of thinking. I delight in the law of God, and I thought, can I say what Paul says in the Holy Writ? (laughs) It's the present tense, according to the inner man. And I do, and I believe they do too. Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law, this is a wonderful verse, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, oh, Christ, right? Christ 
Well, that's true. Christ, in his justification, obeyed the law in our stead. And yet here he says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's sanctification. You're already justified. You're even sanctified at the beginning because you have a new heart. And this is the growth of sanctification, becoming a new person who has new actions, new thoughts. Righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And of course, the question is how? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You don't walk according to, hey, look how good I am. I've obeyed the law. Bring me to heaven, God. But rather, I've been born again. I praise the Lord and I love his law. So, brothers and sisters, what is the law? It is a wonderful thing. It is an expression of God's holy will for his people. For the whole world, to be sure, it restrains them, it rebukes them, it also restrains us, it rebukes us, and in particular, it regulates and guides us and our sanctification. So that we can read Psalm 119, just a little snippet, wholeheartedly. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you, God, for being righteous and holy and just and giving us your law and the justice and giving us Christ Jesus who obeyed the law in our stead and justified us, Lord, by giving us his perfect obedience, imputing it to us through your courts, but also giving us your spirit who indwells in us so that we personally and inwardly start desiring to do that which is holy and good, although we are far from perfect therein. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow and, Lord, to embrace the truth that they who will not have the law to rule them shall never have the gospel to save them, as Watson summarized so beautifully. Help us, God, to continue to grow, to be encouraged therein, God, and to love your law and to love your gospel. Amen and amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 175, 175.
Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.